Our first passage comes from the book of Micah, chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Our second reading comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our final reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All of these readings are the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is my privilege to introduce to you Todd Dethridge, who is one of the co-founders of Telos, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that's dedicated to the formation of communities of American peacemakers across lines of difference. 
to bring healing to both home and abroad. Its primary area of focus has been on America's relationship to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In more recent years, however, they've developed programming aimed at addressing racial injustice in the U.S. Prior to Telos, he previously worked at the State Department in the international religious freedom area and the Secretary of State's Office of Policy and Planning. Prior to that, he spent a decade on Capitol Hill, so he knows the Washington scene, working there as Chief of Staff to Senator Tim Hutchinson. He's a native Arkansan and began his career as an educator, as many of us here at WCF are. He and his wife, Judy, have four adult children and live in Annandale, and they attend the Restoration Anglican Church. Todd, please come up. Thank you, Carol. So good to be with you today in this, um, in this time. To be in an Anabaptist congregation, an Anabaptist community, um, is a gift to me. Um, I think that your tradition has so much to offer the church in the world, so much to teach us. Um, and especially on weeks like this one, when we are again plagued and beset by violence, um, by deep failure to live as God intended us to live. So I'm grateful to be here today along with my wife, Judy. Um, I'm gonna start with a story. In Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Doorstop of a Novel, Les Miserables, he spends nearly 100 pages telling the story of the kindly bishop. This humble man of God is at the center of one of the most remarkable scenes, I think, in the book and in the film and stage adaptations that have followed. The central character in this story is of, 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 of Les Miserables is, of course, a man named Jean Valjean, Valjean is a decent man forced by the inequalities and injustices of his time to steal a loaf of bread just to feed his hungry nephew. And he's caught and he's sentenced to hard labor and after being released from a punishment that was entirely disproportionate to the offense, Valjean and others like him remain shackled by an unjust system that forever marks them as criminals. Angry and unable to survive on the meager wages that ex-con is entitled to receive, Valjean is forced to beg. And there's this seminal moment when Valjean is offered food and a place to spend the night in the home of the kindly bishop. But in the middle of the night, Valjean decides to make off with the bishop's silver. He's caught by the police and he immediately comes up with a story about how the bishop had given him these items. The police, of course, skeptical. They bring him back to the bishop's house and they ask the bishop to verify the tale. And the bishop not only goes along with Valjean's lie, but he says, you also forgot these candlesticks that you, you overlooked as you left. Valjean is almost undone. He's accustomed to only unjust outcomes from the system, and he, he's never experienced mercy and grace. The bishop tells Valjean that he's redeemed his soul with silver and, urge, and urges him to begin a new life. 
the character of the bishop is created as one who is shaped in Hugo's imagination, I think, by deep familiarity with the prophet Micah, with the scripture the Jess just read to us. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To live in just relationship brings transformative change. It's a topic you've taken up as a whole series, and I'm so grateful for your Pastor Andrew for, for choosing that at this time and for being able to be a part of it. The bishop in Hugo's story chose to see Valjean as a fellow human being in need rather than an ex-con or a beggar or a thief. And seeing him as an image-bearing human first and more than the sum of his offenses, he was able to take Jesus' expansive view of neighbor seriously. And he was able to see himself as implicated in the life of someone he'd only just met. And he was willing to sacrifice not just his silver, but also to make himself vulnerable, to perhaps even be made a fool of or taken advantage of by this ex-con. The bishop used what he had to further justice for a man who had been broken by the injustices of his day and to extend mercy to someone who'd known so little of it. And of course, the unexpected and transformative act of grace by the bishop bears fruit in Valjean's life. And he forges a new identity and becomes a prominent and well-to-do businessman. And when the time comes for him to give as he had been given, Valjean rises to the occasion and commits to raise and care for the young daughter of a dying woman. Grace and mercy received is meant to be transmitted again. And in this way, God's kingdom of peace and justice grows. This is the picture of a just relationship, which is why I wanted to start with this story today, because we need these images, we need stories to shape our imagination, to remind us that the world that we live in that is so broken is not the way we were meant to live, and not the way God intended us for us, for us to live. And we need an imagination to think differently. I was invited here to speak because for the past many years, uh, as Carol noted, I've had the privilege of working with and hearing from peacemakers in Israel and Palestine and other parts of the world. And so after spending my time on Capitol Hill and at the State Department back in 2009, I co-founded um, Telos with a guy named Greg Khalil. Our mission statement is the formation of communities of American peacemakers across lines of difference to bring healing to intractable conflict at home and abroad. That's a, that's a big mouthful and a big ambitious thing to take on. Properly done, I think almost all peacemaking is done in the context of relationships. And I, and, and I say that all the time and everywhere I go, but I would add, as I've been thinking more about your sermon series, um, that it's done in the context of just relationships. So I do love it that you, that you are doing this right now. So our topic today is just relationships with Israelis and Palestinians, but before we get to that, I'm going to tell you two more stories about friends of mine and of our work at Telos. In the photo you see um, on your left is a man named Rami Ohanan. He's a Jewish-Israeli father. His 14-year-old daughter, Smadar, was killed in 1997 by a Palestinian suicide bombing attack on a public street in Jerusalem while she was out shopping for school supplies with her friends. The man on your right is Bassam Aramin. He's a Muslim Palestinian father 
whose 10-year-old daughter, Abir, was killed by an Israeli border policeman outside her school in Jerusalem in 2008. She just bought some candy at a store across the street and was returning to the, uh, to the school to take a math test. These men who have suffered unfathomable tragedy at the hands of someone from the other side should in no way be friends with each other, but in fact they're closer than brothers. After the horror of losing a daughter, each of them rejected any notion of revenge and they joined with others who had lost loved ones in the conflict to do the work of reconciliation. Their organization is called the Parent Circle and it's made up of about 600 Israeli and Palestinian families who are seeking to live in just relationship with each other and are working for the systemic kind of justice in their conflict that can bring healing and reconciliation. If you want to know more about their story, I highly recommend a novel called A Paragon. It was written by our friend Colin McCann, who traveled with Telos uh, multiple times to the Holy Land and became friends with Rami and Bassam and decided to tell their story in a really beautiful novel. Uh, Steven Spielberg has bought the film rights. We're hopeful that at some point this becomes a story that many, many others learn about. Again, we need better stories about how to better live together. So the question then is what would it look like for us to live in just relationship to Israelis and Palestinians in their conflict? I ask this question for those of you who've been to the region, to those of you who may have ties there, to those of you who are active in supporting causes around the Holy Land or around Israel and Palestine. In short, to any of you who care about what happens in the modern day Holy Land. But I also ask the question to those of you who haven't been there and who haven't thought much about it. So don't go to sleep on me or start thinking about where you're going for brunch. I'm asking you too, because a lot of things are done in your name. A lot of power and resources are pro projected into this conflict in your name. You see, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a vexing foreign policy challenge for the United States that functions like a domestic political issue. And one of the primary reasons this is so is because people like you and me care about it, American Christians. But the problem is that we've channeled that energy and that passion and that care into activism that too often mirrors the conflict itself. In fact, you can say we've imported the conflict into our own culture, onto our college campuses, into our politics, and even into our churches. And, and too often to be pro-Israel is to be by default anti-Palestinian. And to be pro-Palestine is often to be anti-Israeli. And this zero-sum kind of activism in which only in which one side only wins when the other loses, only keeps the conflict going. And that's because I believe it's built against the moral universe, the way God intended for us to live. So all this has created a relationship with Israelis and Palestinians that's unhealthy and on balance unhelpful to the long-term flourishing of both. Which then begs the question, what would a just relationship look like? Four things. I think it would be rooted in relationship with both Israelis and Palestinians. Again, most peacemaking is done in the context of relationship. 
And so having experiences and relationships with real people before you're involved is an important place to start. Secondly, it would be committed to truth, to truth about the reality lived by both people, about their narratives and experience of history, about the power dynamics that exist between them. But reconciliation work, a more just world, is always built on honesty and truth about how we got where we are and where we are today. It's a daunting challenge in an era and time in which truth is so much under threat. What is true and what is not is, in the era of fake news is very difficult to get at. We're dealing with this in our own story in the United States. What is the truth of the American story? What is the truth of our founding? And how essential is understanding our story in all its honesty, in all its aspirational beauty and brutality? How foundational is that to being able to get to a place where we can actually pursue justice and reconciliation? So committing ourselves to truth about the reality is incredibly important. A third mark of a just relationship, I think, would be that it would work for justice, peace, and healing. And it would be built on a theology of shalom and God's peaceable kingdom, on the ministry of reconciliation to which we are called. And in this way, it would be a rejection of the ways in which faith and theologies are often weaponized against vulnerable people whether that be the Christian theologies that help create and sustain anti-Semitism for centuries, or the eschatologies and, and other theologies that have made Palestinians more vulnerable in their land and which have been used to denigrate or undermine conflict resolution in Israel-Palestine today. We have to de-weaponize our theologies. And again, this is one place which I think people formed in an Anabaptist tradition have so much to teach and so much to offer into the world and to the church. And the fourth mark of a just relationship with Israelis and Palestinians, I think, is that it would, it would seek the flourishing of all, not one against the other. The, the reality is that for there to be a good future for Israelis in the land, there also has to be a good future for Palestinians. For there to be a good future for Palestinians in the land, there has to be a good future for Israelis. It is not a zero-sum game. It can't be a zero-sum game. I don't have the perfect parable or, or Bible story where Jesus had two friends in conflict and he decided to intervene to help them both understand that their true flourishing was connected to moves toward the shalom of God, to, to just relationships, but it's all there. Listen to the prophet Micah, who we've already cited, to the apostle Paul, who we also read today, who in Romans 12 calls us to live in harmony with one another as a shalom people who remember that we were meant to exist in right relationship with God and with each other and the created natural world and flourishing in justice and peace. And Paul goes on to admonish us to do another hard thing, which is to the extent possible, as, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everyone. 
These insights are a part of the larger story of God we are invited into, to be a shalom people. They fit into the overall narrative arc of Scripture that moves from the wholeness and unity of shalom, and it's so crucial that we start here with shalom, with how God meant the world to be, before we move on to the fall, which we are too intimately and painfully aware of, particularly even in the last few days. But then the arc of Scripture moves to God's desire and plan to heal and repair all that is broken and the coming of Jesus to bring the kingdom of God in which all is being restored. So, how might Jesus have us engage with complicated conflicts like the one between Israelis and Palestinians? Well, it can be that if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, but because of what I do, I would argue that our call is to be peacemakers. My definition of peacemaking that I've been working from for some time now is that we are to be people who pursue justice in a way that is oriented toward healing and reconciliation. This can be what distinguishes Christians from those who, who on the one hand may not care about justice and on the other from those whose pursuit of justice is more of a sort of turning of the tables and burning down the house. This can be a Christian contribution to a badly fractured world. We are called to be a people with a fierce commitment to justice and mercy, with an approach that works not only to dismantle broken systems, but also that is fully committed to repair and rebuilding, and to a future in which even our enemies can flourish. We can be a people who endeavor to be a common friend to Israelis and Palestinians, to those who suffer the effects of occupation and and control, to those who suffer fear and violence, to those who work for peace. And we can be a people who seek the flourishing of Palestinians and Israelis alike, and who realize that relationships characterized by justice are essential to getting there. At Telos, we've attempted to distill the things we've learned from peacemakers in six principles and six practices, which you can see here on the screen, but you can also find these on our website, telosgroup.org. These can be helpful in both understanding the principles that undergird honest peacemaking. Everybody's for peace, but too often when we hear the word peace, we think of unserious things, rainbows and unicorns and flowers and bad poetry and things like that. Peacemaking is much more gritty, much more difficult than that. And the principles that undergird it help us to understand that. And then there are six things that we can actually practice, things we can do to live out our calling to be peacemakers. So things like the first principle, which that change is always possible. It's a, it's a reminder that we need, especially again, in the days we're living in. It's not inevitable, but it's possible. Transformation happens, both of human hearts and in systems of power. I had the privilege of working at the State Department when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State. And if you look at the story of her life, she's not an old woman, she's in her 60s today. But she was born in the segregated South in Alabama in the peak of the 
civil rights movement, very difficult time, a bloody time. She was friends with the four little girls who were killed in the Birmingham church bombing in 1963. So Jim Crow was so entrenched and her parents decided to take their only child and leave the South and they moved to Denver to get away from this system that looked like it would never end. And she grew up in Denver and she went to college there and she became a fluent Russian speaker and an expert in the Cold War which brought her to Washington and she worked in the White House and ultimately became the U.S. Secretary of State as an expert in the Cold War. These two institutions that so shaped her life, Jim Crow segregation, Soviet communism, don't exist anymore. All the problems have not been solved, we know. There are legacies of both those that very much remain with us. But those two overarching systems, which looked like they would last forever, don't exist. And that's in the space of her lifetime. Change is possible. Transformation happens. We're Christians. We believe that. And that has to undergird our work. A second principle of peacemaking is that peace and justice are intertwined. Martin Luther King famously said, peace is not the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. Just because things are calm doesn't mean things are just and right. We have to work for justice to get to peace. A third principle of peacemaking, which is appropriate to the sermon series, is that authentic relationships across lines of difference fuel transformation. And as I said earlier, most all peacemaking is done in the context of just relationships. And then there are practices, things we can do. The first is what we call listen to understand. It's active listening. It's not listening to argue or to debate, but we begin by listening to understand where someone else who's also made in the image of God, just like us, is coming from. The theologian Paul Tillich said, love's first act is to listen. We don't do this well. I don't do this well. Something we have to practice. Often when we listen to a point of view that we disagree with, we're only listening so long as to formulate all the reasons why the other person is wrong. And sometimes we don't even let them finish what they're saying before we interrupt and explain to them why they're wrong. And that's, of course, not listening. There's a time to debate. There's a time to argue things out. But love's first act is to listen. And to listen to points of view we disagree with, to listen to new perspectives. The last practice of peacemaking, and there are others in between that you can explore at your own, but the last practice is to orient ourselves toward the beloved community. That's a phrase from Martin Luther King. It's what we would call the kingdom of God, the place in which we live in mutuality, to strive for the beloved community. Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. There's so much wisdom in that. This is a direct attack on one of the great idols of our day. 
the idolatry of the fully autonomous, unaccountable self. It is an American plague. How else to explain the extremes on both ends of the American political spectrum? How else to explain our demand for unchecked individual rights at the expense of human lives? We are in an idolatrous death grip as we reject notions of mutuality and responsibility to others as more important than individual autonomy and the supreme self. Again, the wisdom of Dr. King is so relevant and instructive to us. King said, all people are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be who you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. This is the true reality. This is the reality that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, in the vision of the Beatitudes. The world we live in can sound different than this. Might makes right, and he who dies with the most toys wins. And we have all these maxims that explain the world and all its fallenness. But King understood the world as it was meant to be, as Jesus was trying to teach us the world he's bringing about in his kingdom. King's insights take us to where the story began in Genesis 1 and 2, to Shalom. And I know Andrew has already unpacked all of this earlier in this, the series, but a just relationship is one in which there is true mutuality. It is a relationship built on the understanding that my flourishing is tied to yours and yours to mine and ours to others. It arises from that creation order from Genesis 1 when the world that God made was good and whole. We can't live in right relationship with God without being in right relationship with others. As John wrote in one of his letters, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who, who he has seen who has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John Paul Lederach is a Mennonite scholar and a conflict resolution practitioner who spent years living and working in parts of the world riven by conflict. And I mention John Paul not just because I'm here in a Mennonite community today, but because of the tremendous impact he's had on the work of Telos and on the whole field of peacemaking and conflict resolution in the United States and around the world. And one of the things that John Paul has noticed is that peacemakers are often people who can employ the ability to, as he says, imagine themselves embedded within a, a web of relationships that include their enemies. Nobody imagines this web of relationships better than my friend Roni Kadar, who you see in the photo here. She's an Israeli grandmother who lives in a village in the south of Israel immediately adjacent to the border of the Gaza Strip. It's a difficult neighborhood. 
She lives in a tight-knit community called Nativ Hasara, and she's, she has children and grandchildren who live on the village with her, and like all of us, she wants freedom and safety and security for her family. She wants her grandchildren to grow up with opportunities and in a just society. What makes her more unique is her awareness that she is in a web of relationships that, that, that is more than just the people in her village. A web of relationships that includes the people of Gaza, just a few hundred meters away. She knows that her own flourishing and the flourishing of her family and of all those like her is directly knitted together. She does this work from a good heart, but she also knows that in the end, the life she dreams of for herself and her children and her grandchildren and for her country will never be available to them unless her neighbors in Gaza have the opportunity for a life of their own. She realizes that she exists in a web of relationships and she has to act accordingly. This is the concept of neighbor lived out in a moral universe. So the last story I'll leave you with today is about a man named Elie Shakur. Shakur was born into a Palestinian Christian family in the Upper Galilee region in 1939, and as a little boy, his family became refugees, internally dis displaced within what became the new state of Israel in its founding. They, along with their neighbors, were not allowed to return to their village, which today sits on the Israeli side of the border of Lebanon. His parents endured many hardships, but they had a deep Christian faith, and they sent their son to study for the priesthood in their Melkite tradition. Shakur devoted himself to pastoring a church in a small village called Ibelin, and he built a school there to serve his community before going on to become the Melkite Archbishop. Many years ago, he wrote a memoir of his life and his experiences. It's called Blood Brothers. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. The foreword to one edition of the book was written by the former U.S. Secretary of State, Jim Baker, who became a friend of Shakur's. I met Shakur early on in my travels to Israel years ago, and he was one of the first people I knew to challenge me on my thinking about the people of his land and how to relate to them in justice. He was the one who said first and most clearly to me that if I have Israeli friends, keep them. And if I want to be pro-Israel, go ahead. But don't interpret that to mean that I should have antipathy to him and other Palestinians. And if I want to be pro-Palestinian, he'd welcome me and thank me for the support. But don't interpret that to mean that I should wish harm to Jewish Israelis. He asked me to be a common friend to both, and not in a kumbaya kind of way, but a friend that supports justice and peace. In other words, to live in a just relationship with both and to work for a just reality for both. And so, I close with a pra this prayer from St. George's Anglican Church in Jerusalem, where it says, pray not for Arabs or Jews, for Palestinians or Israelis, but pray rather for ourselves that we may not divide them in our prayers, but keep them both together in our hearts. 
Amen.